Welcome to NTD Evening News. Our top story tonight is Hamas using hospitals as terrorist bases. Video shows a terrorist firing explosives from a hospital entrance. Jason Perry with more on that and a secret room where the hostages were possibly kept. Supreme Court justices agree to adopt a code of ethics for the first time. Find out what it, what it does and why all nine of them agree to it. Is the honeymoon phase ending for House Speaker Mike Johnson? His plan to avoid a government shutdown is meeting with opposition from both sides. In a vote that may allow DHS Secretary Mayorkas to avoid impeachment, Melina Weisskopf has the details from Capitol Hill. We have your back. That's Congressman Mike Gallagher's message to Indo-Pacific allies facing threats from the Chinese communist regime. And what's on President Biden's agenda at an upcoming global trade summit in San Francisco? Iris Tao is there. And a massive fire destroys part of Interstate 10 in Los Angeles. The governor declares a state of emergency as the freeway remains shut down. Christina Corona at the scene. This is NTD Evening News. Live from our NTD Global Headquarters in New York City, here is Tiffany Meyer. Good evening and thank you for joining us tonight. The closer Israeli forces get to hospitals in the Gaza Strip, the more information they find showing Hamas is using them as terrorist bases. A recent video released by the IDF shows evidence that hostages were likely kept in the basement of a hospital in Gaza City. NTD's Jason Perry has the latest, and a warning, this report contains footage that some viewers may find disturbing. Hospitals across the Gaza Strip have been overflowing with patients since the war began between Israel and Hamas terrorists. On Monday, the Israel Defense Forces released a disturbing video of a terrorist carrying a rocket-propelled grenade launcher, or RPG, towards the entrance of Al-Quds Hospital in northern Gaza. And then he turns around. Aerial footage then shows a projectile launched from in front of the hospital, striking an Israeli tank, according to the IDF. After firing the RPG at Israeli forces, the terrorists went inside the hospital to hide. Here's the IDF spokesperson on Monday. Now, what Hamas is doing systematically is abusing the protected status of hospitals and uh, ambulances and medical clinics all over the Gaza Strip in order to fight from or to seek refuge under or to conduct military operations under. A doctor at Gaza's main hospital, Al-Shifa, described the difficulties the hospital is now facing caring for premature babies during the war. Yesterday at 1 o'clock in the morning, we lost the electricity connection. So even the AC and the heater didn't work. Then we tried to cover the newborns as much as we can. And this issue will keep happening again as long as Israel is not offering us a proper way of delivering the gas to Gaza to Al-Shifa Hospital. Meanwhile, the IDF claims Hamas terrorists take any fuel that's delivered to the hospital. Moreover, in a Sunday morning operation, the Israeli military reported hand-delivering 300 liters of fuel to Al-Shifa Hospital for urgent medical purposes. But the IDF also reported on Sunday that Hamas did not allow the hospital to receive the fuel. 
Also concerning the premature babies, the Israeli military said that if Al-Shifa Hospital makes the request, it's ready to transport them to another hospital. Meanwhile, the IDF appears to be making progress towards locating the hostages in Hamas captivity as it released a video showing the basement of another hospital, Al-Rantisi Hospital, in the Gaza Strip. You're now entering into the room where we suspect the hostages were being held. I want you to look at this room. People are putting curtains with nothing above, just wall. No reason to put here a curtain unless you want to film hostages and deliver movies. And now we'll show you more evidence. In this room, there is a list. This is a guardian list where every terrorist writes his name and every terrorist has his own shift guarding the people that were here. Approximately 240 hostages were taken by Hamas terrorists on October 7th. The IDF says they're doing all they can to try to bring them home. Jason Perry, NTD News. The Supreme Court now has a code of conduct following months of public scrutiny and pressure from Democrat lawmakers. But the justices say the code is nothing new. The justices describe the new code as gathering and codifying rules they already follow. It's based on an existing code of conduct for lower courts. The new code is an attempt to improve public confidence in the high court. Months of headlines have accused justices of failing to report luxury gifts and trips. The move comes after mounting pressure from Democrats in Congress who threatened to pass new bills mandating just such a code. All nine justices agreed to it, but they didn't make clear how the code would be enforced. Donald Trump Jr. returns to the stand today. This time, he's being questioned by his own team as they begin their defense in the New York civil fraud trial that could change the senior Trump's New York empire. Our legal correspondent Arlene Richards has more. The older son of the former president is on the stand Monday for the second time, with Attorney General Letitia James not far behind. Donald Trump Jr. is the first witness for the defense in the New York fraud case filed by James. She accuses Donald Jr. of joining his father and his younger brother in defrauding banks and insurance companies. The last time he was on the stand, Donald Jr. said he didn't know much about his father's financial statements, which are at the heart of this trial. He said he only signed financial statements after checking first with his accountants and legal department. On Monday, Trump Jr. told the story of his father's real estate empire. The defense examination led the younger Trump through the family assets dating back to the 1900s. Trump Jr. touted his father's successes and called him an artist with real estate. The attorney general objected to the lengthy testimony, but the judge sided with the defense attorneys, saying let him go ahead and talk about how great the Trump organization is. Donald Jr. also talked about his role in the Trump Organization after his father became president. Both he and younger brother Eric took over managing the assets. Trump Jr. handled the bigger deals while Eric took care of the day-to-day -day management. The older brother bragged that Trump Tower was 90 percent occupied. On a very short cross-examination, the AG's attorney said the occupancy dropped to 77 percent. She showed documents stating the mortgage was transferred to a special servicer and that it was on the watch list. Trump Jr. quietly responding that he didn't know for sure if that was true. 
Trump Jr.'s testimony ended before court was adjourned. The defense then called tax attorney Sherry Dillon. The state previously asked her about a 2015 appraisal of a Trump estate valued at $56.5 million. But in financial statements from 2011 to 2021, it was valued between $261 and $291 million. On Monday, Dillon explained her role as a tax attorney involved in conversations about the property appraisals. Former President Trump's oldest sister, Marianne Trump Barry, has died, according to the New York City Police Department. Barry, a former federal judge and prosecutor, was 86. President Ronald Reagan appointed her to serve on the federal district court in New Jersey in the 1980s. In 1999, then-President Bill Clinton nominated her to the Third Court of Appeals. Barry retired in 2019. She was one of Donald Trump's closest confidants throughout his life. In 2016, President Trump called his sister a highly respected judge and noted they disagreed on some public policy issues. Congress returns to D.C. today yet again facing a self-inflicted tight deadline to avoid a government shutdown later this week. House Speaker Mike Johnson now has a plan in place, but it's already meeting with resistance on both sides. NTD's Melina Weiskup has more on this novel approach to government funding and the opposition to it. House Speaker Mike Johnson over the weekend unveiled a two-part plan, a so-called laddered approach to temporarily extend government funding to avoid a shutdown later this week. This is an uncommon approach and it addresses government funding in two parts. The first part would expire mid-January on January 19th and it addresses only certain parts of the government, including military, veterans affairs, transportation, housing and the energy department. The second part of the bill would expire just a bit later on February 7th and that would address the rest of the government. To, uh, to get something to the Senate, to move things along, to at least deliver something uh, sooner rather than later. The plan doesn't include any extra money for Ukraine, Israel, or funding for the U.S. border, but Johnson says the plan is meant to avoid Congress's holiday tradition of massive loaded-up spending bills introduced right before the Christmas recess. But this plan is not welcomed by everyone. There are at least a handful of Republicans, including the chairman of the House Freedom Caucus, Scott Perry, who are opposing it because it doesn't include spending cuts. I'm tired of this. Let's pass it so we can get to pass a budget. I've been dealing with that for five years and it's never happened. There's another question to this. That is, if more Democrats support it than Republicans who are opposing it, would that then open up Speaker Johnson to the same amount of scrutiny by his own caucus that former Speaker Kevin McCarthy faced not too long ago when he was ousted? And in other news, the House tonight will take a vote on a procedural motion to table Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene's motion to impeach DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. We are watching to see how this procedural vote plays out in the House, because if it fails, then that would mean that the House would take an entire House vote on whether or not to officially impeach the DHS Secretary. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskup, NTD News. The White House laying out President Biden's agenda at the upcoming APEC summit. That says Congressman Mike Gallagher vows to stand with Indo-Pacific allies as they face increasing threats from the Chinese Communist Party. NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao, who's at the summit in San Francisco, has more.
So President Biden is expected to get here in San Francisco on Tuesday, of course, for this week's Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit right here. And the White House today saying that President Biden will demonstrate the U.S.'s economic leadership in the Indo-Pacific region. Watch. While in San Francisco, you'll see President Biden put forward his economic vision for the region. He will speak about how the United States is the preeminent driver of inclusive, sustainable economic growth in the Asia-Pacific and how the Asia-Pacific is critical to growth here at home. And a big focus for him this week is to promote his Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, or IPEF. It's seen as the Biden administration's economic plan to counter China's economic influence in the Indo-Pacific region, especially through its Belt and Road Initiative, which is often criticized as not being transparent enough and often turning out to be dead traps. Meanwhile, President Biden is also meeting with the head of the Chinese Communist Party, Xi Jinping, on Wednesday. And President Biden is expected to bring up issues such as human rights in Taiwan and national security concerns like the White House mentioned today, especially after a spy balloon incident in the U.S. earlier this year, and of course increasing espionage activities by Beijing. Meanwhile, the chairman of the House Select Committee on the CCP, Mike Gallagher, told me this weekend that allies in the Asian-Pacific region, including Japan, South Korea, and other countries, should work with the U.S. to together counter economic coercion by Beijing. Watch. What's your message to the leaders of these key democratic allies of the U.S. who are facing pressure from the CCP in their countries? Uh, my message is that, at least in Congress, we have your back. I think China versus not just the U.S., but really the entire free world, um, that's, I'd rather be on our side 10 times out of 10. U.S. allies such as Australia, Japan, South Korea and Taiwan have all been dealing with Beijing's pressure tactics. The Taiwanese president, for example, is not allowed to be here for the APEC summit in person due to objection from the Chinese Communist Party. Back to you. Downtown San Francisco has been transformed with high security provisions for APEC. Multiple protests have already happened with more to come. NTD's Jason Blair has more. Downtown San Francisco has basically morphed into a high security zone. As you can see behind me, there are high fences in place. A four by four block area won't allow any unauthorized vehicles in. And then there's a red zone area inside there that won't allow any unauthorized pedestrians. Many of Apex meetings and activities are scheduled to happen here. Other street closures begin today in the city's Knob Hill neighborhood near hotels where some of the high-ranking attendees, including President Biden, are said to be staying. A three-by-three three block area is closed off with similar provisions as the downtown security area. Public transit has also been affected by many reroutes. San Francisco's famous cable cars have been temporarily replaced by buses. The San Francisco Police Department started training and getting ready for the trade summit since February. Two to 5,000 police and federal officers are expected to be in town, which is about one officer for every four attendees. However, a lot of the law enforcement will be outside and around the city deterring possible threats and managing multiple protests expected through the week. On Sunday, multiple groups protested against the APEX summit. Footage on the Citizen app shows that earlier today, some aerialists propelled down the Transamerica Pyramid, calling for a ceasefire with the Israel-Hamas war. And there's more protest activity expected to happen. Most of it will likely be on Wednesday and Thursday when APEC will be at its peak. 
As far as meetings tomorrow, the APEC CEO summit welcome reception is scheduled to happen at the Moscone Center downtown. Reporting in San Francisco, Jason Blair, NTD News. Staying in California, a massive fire destroyed parts of a freeway in Los Angeles. The blaze has been put out, but cleanup and repairs will keep the road shut down for now. And today's Christina Corona brings us the latest. We are here east of downtown Los Angeles, where a fire erupted under the 10 freeway early Saturday morning at a storage facility, which spread and ignited a second fire at a storage facility, ultimately engulfing around 80,000 square feet. Interstate 10 remains closed in both directions in downtown L.A. between Alameda Street and East L.A. Interchange. City leaders recommend planning for extra time for the morning commute, working from home, or taking public transit. On Saturday, I directed all city departments to immediately plan for how to address increased traffic due to this closure to best mitigate the impact on Angelenos, and we will continue to urgently coordinate with our state partners to resolve this issue for not only the millions who use this freeway and the adjacent freeways, but also to those who live and work in the surrounding areas. If you are driving on the freeway through downtown, we ask that you do not exit the freeway onto surface streets to bypass the affected area. Instead, drivers on the 10 are advised to transfer between the 110, 101, and 5 freeways if going eastbound and the reverse from the 5, the 101, the 110 if going westbound to avoid the affected area. Governor Gavin Newsom declared a state of emergency in Los Angeles County due to the fire. Uh, we haven't counted the entire number of columns, but you're getting closer to 100 or so columns, 400 plus feet of the structure that's been impacted. Uh, what appears on the outside to be problematic may not be the real problem. It's what lies underneath, and that's the bridge deck, and that's the primary focus now of our investigation. The blaze was first reported around 12.20 a.m. on Saturday. It ripped through two storage lots beneath the highway, burning parked cars, wooden pallets, and support poles for power lines. There are homeless encampments near the freeway. The reason for the fire is under investigation. As of the governor's announcement this morning, no lives were lost in the fire. As of now, officials have said the 10 freeway will remain closed indefinitely and for commuters to use the 605 and 101 freeways if needed. Christina Corona, Entity News, Los Angeles. Coming up, a Secret Service agent opens fire while on duty, tasked with protecting the president's granddaughter. A presidential candidate suspending his run so abruptly, staff find out by watching television. We have that, plus more updates on the 2024 election cycle. How much does the border crisis cost for American taxpayers? A report from House Republicans gives a staggering amount. And controversy over a case involving a religious charter school. There's disagreement over whether they can receive public funding. NTD speaks with the organization representing the school board after the break. Welcome back. A U.S. Secret Service agent tasked with protecting President Biden's granddaughter shot at individuals attempting to break into a Secret Service vehicle. 
This happening in the Georgetown neighborhood of Washington, D.C. The agent who opened fire was with Naomi Biden's security detail. A spokesman for the Secret Services said that following the shooting, two or three suspects fled the scene. The investigation is still ongoing. He added that no one was shot and that there was no threat to anyone under Secret Services protection. Washington has seen a significant rise in carjackings and car thefts, up 98% over the past year. There have been over 750 carjackings this year and more than 6,000 reports of stolen vehicles. Several weeks ago, Congressman Henry Cuellar was carjacked near the Capitol by three armed suspects. Now over to the 2024 election cycle, a presidential candidate is suddenly dropping out, while another one is doubling down on the campaign. NTD's Arian Pazdar has an update on some key races, starting with a Democratic Congresswoman running to succeed Glenn Youngkin as Virginia's governor. Lowering prescription drug prices, growing the middle class, lowering costs and easing inflation. These are some of the promises Virginia gubernatorial candidate Abigail Spamberger is making. The three-term Democratic representative also says she will fight for abortion access, calling it... And stopping extremists from shredding women's reproductive rights. Virginia's constitution doesn't allow consecutive terms for governors. It's unclear what current governor Glenn Youngkin's political future holds after his term. On the national stage, presidential candidate Nikki Haley is spending big in Iowa and New Hampshire. Haley will spend $10 million on television, radio, and digital advertising. She hopes the money will give her an advantage over Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Now let's take a look at the polls. As of Monday, former President Trump still clearly leading the GOP primaries. He has about 56%. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis does come in second, but far behind Trump, trailing by about 40 percentage points. Nikki Haley and tech entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy are both under 10% at this time. Meanwhile, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott suddenly suspended his presidential campaign on Sunday night. Watch. I am suspending my campaign. I, I think the voters uh, who are the most remarkable people on the planet have been really clear that they're telling me uh, not now, Tim. The news was so surprising that one campaign staff reportedly found out Scott was dropping out by watching the show. Scott says he's not endorsing any one of the remaining candidates at this point. And stepping down after 19 years, longtime Democratic Congressman Brian Higgins of a heavily Democratic district in Buffalo, New York, is stepping down. He cited a slow pace on the Hill this year, indicating frustration over the way things are going in D.C. He plans to resign early next year. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. $451 billion, that's how much Americans have to pay to care for illegal immigrants released into the country per year. This is according to a new congressional report released today. Rep. Jim Jordan says that's more than the state budgets of California and Ohio combined. Republicans on the House Homeland Security Committee released the report documenting the cost of the Biden administration's border policies. It covered a range of aspects, including health care, law enforcement, education, housing and transportation. It finds that Americans could pay up to $451 billion to care for illegal immigrants in the United States. 
Hospital and emergency room care is one of the most significant expenses. Committee Chairman Mark Green said it is unconscionable for Secretary Mayorkas and President Biden to force the American people to pick up the tab for the crisis their border policies created. A school board in Oklahoma in June approved the first religious charter school in the U.S. to receive public funding. But a lawsuit against the board to prevent its opening soon followed. NTD's Daniel Monahan spoke with Alliance Defending Freedom, which represents the school board about the case. Charter schools are public schools which are publicly funded and operate independently. In June of this year, the Oklahoma Statewide Virtual Charter School Board voted to approve the application of St. Isidore of Seville Virtual Catholic School. A group of plaintiffs called the Oklahoma Parent Legislative Action Committee then sued to overturn the board's approval of St. Isidore. The legal firm Alliance Defending Freedom has since filed a motion to dismiss the lawsuit and defend the board's decision to allow religious groups to seek public funding for privately operated charter schools. Alliance Defending Freedom Senior Counsel Phil Seckler. Yeah, I would say the issue, Daniel, is whether when the state decides to give public funding to privately operated schools, it can treat religious groups as second-class citizens, whether it can discriminate against religious applicants and treat them differently from other private applicants. Seckler says the Supreme Court addressed the matter two years ago in Carson versus Macon. The decision responded to the state of Maine's rule prohibiting tuition aid support for religious schools. There, uh, another program was set up by the state of Maine to provide assistance to parents who wanted educational opportunities. And the state said, but it has to be a non-sectarian school. And the Supreme Court made it clear that you can't treat religious groups like second-class citizens. They have to be treated the same so that if the state decides to give public funds to privately operated uh, schools, it needs to do so fairly and has to treat religious groups the same. Seckler says the free exercise clause of the U.S. Constitution makes it clear that if a state decides to open up an educational opportunity to private groups, it can't tell religious groups not to apply. It has to treat them the same way. It can make many choices, but once it decides to make that an opportunity to private groups, it can't treat religious groups as second-class citizens. The Free Exercise Clause protects the right of citizens to practice their religion as they please, so long as the practice does not run afoul of public morals or a compelling governmental interest. Seckler believes St. Isidore would offer a valuable Catholic education option for parents in remote areas of Oklahoma where no nearby Catholic schools are available due to how spread out the state is. That the board, you know, when it made its decision to approve St. Isidore, uh, decided it was going to treat St. Isidore, just like it would treat any other applicant, it was not going to discriminate against the school because it's Catholic. And that decision just adds to the choices that Oklahomans have available. One of the plaintiffs in the case is Reverend Lori Walker. Walker told an Oklahoma newspaper, quote, you can't use people's tax dollars to promote or establish religion. NTD reached out to Walker and the Oklahoma Parent Legislative Action Committee who brought the lawsuit. We are still waiting to hear back from them. St. Isidore plans to open in the fall of 2024. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Coming up, a Republican strategist shares with us his thoughts on the looming government shutdown. Will House Speaker Mike Johnson be able to get his plan through? 
And our legacy media repeating Hamas narratives when they report on the war in Gaza. An author joins us to share what he's discovered. Stay tuned for more after the break here on NTD News. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some today's top headlines. The Supreme Court adopted its first code of conduct following months of scrutiny by the public and Congress. The justices described the new code as gathering and codifying guidelines they already follow. Donald Trump Jr. returned to the stand in the New York civil fraud trial. This time he's being questioned by his own team as they begin their defense in the case. House Speaker Mike Johnson unveiled a two-part laddered approach to extend government funding until early next year, but it's already meeting with resistance on both sides. The White House said President Biden will showcase U.S. leadership in the Indo-Pacific region at the APEC summit later this week. He's also expected to bring up issues including Taiwan, human rights and national security to China. A video from the Israeli military showed a Hamas terrorist using a hospital in Gaza for cover. Another video also showed that hostages were likely kept in the basement of a hospital in Gaza City. During the Israel-Hamas war, are journalists reporting from inside Gaza able to be accurate? An author says that's just not possible in a war zone involving terrorist groups. He's joining us to explain what's happening. Lee Smith, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Thank you for having me on today. As the Israel-Hamas war continues, there's a growing focus on media's role. Now, you wrote a piece titled, Let's Talk About Reporting in War Zones. Tell us about that. What was the controversy that you found? Well, this was this was uh, several years ago, and this is when uh, the Israelis hit a building in Gaza where the AP had an office. And the AP was saying, uh, quite dis- quite dishonestly, saying, "Oh no, we have no I- had no idea that Hamas had an office there," uh, and in fact, that everyone knew that Hamas had an office there. Indeed, uh, former Barack Obama administration officials knew that Hamas had an office there. So, therefore, Joe Biden officials did too. So, when Joe Biden officials complained to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu about hitting a building with an office full of journalists in it. He, he knew it, they knew exactly what was going on. They knew that the AP was there under an agreement with Hamas. And the agreement is simply this, is that Western media outlets are more than uh, welcome to stay in places like Gaza, provided that they serve as uh, organs to amplify terror uh, terror regimes, terror organizations message. So the fact that the AP is the AP was in there just means that they were close to the subject that they were reporting. That's what we're seeing today as well. This is why Western press organizations hire stringers, photographers, reporters, translators, fixers in Gaza. It's to cover Hamas. The people that they are hiring, the people that they are bringing on board are all close to Hamas. They're hiring people who are embedded with terror organizations. And this brings us to the current controversy with photographers embedded with Hamas, including those who were there on October 7th for the obscene attack on Israelis. Israel is calling for legacy media outlets like the AP, CNN, Reuters and The New York Times to investigate those who were on the ground that day, suggesting that they had prior knowledge of the October 7th attack. How do you read media's 
role in times of well, war like this. Yeah, of course they had prior knowledge of the attack. That's why they were riding in on motorcycles, right? On October, that's why they went in to Gaza on October 7th riding motorcycles. So did they have prior knowledge of the uh, uh, attack six minutes before, six hours before, six days before? I, I don't have any idea, and I assume that's one of the things. We're not going to get this from a press investigation. We'll get this as uh, the government of Israel starts to interrogate prisoners that it's taking in Gaza, whether these are actual Hamas fighters or, in some cases, whether these are so-called photojournalists. So there is no question that they had, that they knew in advance what was going on because they went in with them. What, what, what do, how do I think that Western press organizations should handle this? I think everyone involved in hiring these people should be fired. On that note, Israel's statement goes on to call these journalists, quote, accomplices in crimes against humanity. Now, that is a serious allegation 100% there. 100% correct. 100% now the, correct. Now, the New York Times has fired back defending their photojournalist, saying that he was not present or working that day on October 7th, saying he went on to do good work for them, adding that these statements from Israel are, quote, untrue and outrageous. How does the media maintain credibility in times like this when the public is getting conflicting statements? They have no credibility anymore. This is the enormous problem. Look, we've seen this problem going on, and the New York Times has a lot of nerve making the statement. When there was a huge controversy, uh, and I, I believe it was 2006, with the Israel-Hezbollah war, the second Lebanon war, the Israelis call it, and the, the Times, uh, Times photographer staged a war crime. Right. When, as part of the phone photojournalism series, they staged a war crime in the middle of a Lebanese city. But the Times knows what it's done in the past and the Times knows what it's doing now. And this is one of the reasons, again, why people distrust the media, because they're lying through their teeth. Given the history of the AP Bureau in Gaza and Hamas, how do journalists balance getting the story, being on the ground there, versus reporting what a terrorist organization like Hamas wants the world to hear? I think the idea of getting the story uh, is much less important than compromising journalistic values to serve, again, as a propaganda amplifier for terrorist organizations. Look, I saw this up close. I lived in Lebanon for several years. Uh, I've traveled to Lebanon uh, for, for several decades now. And I know the people there who report on Hezbollah, who cover Hezbollah. It's the same exact thing going on. You don't get to cover Hezbollah. You don't get to write on Hezbollah. You don't get to read, uh, 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 meet with Hezbollah officials without giving favorable cover to Hezbollah. So insofar as Americans really need the story so badly that journalists are going to compromise the entire going to compromise not just the profession of journalism, but the idea of information and the flow of information by serving the needs of a terrorist organization? No, we don't need the story. Remember that this is the deal CNN made with Saddam Hussein's regime, right? In order to keep their office in Baghdad, they had to cover Saddam favorably in the event that someday they might need to do a really important story on Saddam Hussein. But what they'd done in the meantime was they'd built up a record of decades worth of fake coverage on Saddam Hussein. And that's what we're seeing today with all of these Western press outfits uh, embedding or, or, or picking on journalists embedded with Hamas, embedded with Hezbollah. It's a disaster. It's a disaster for the United States. Again, that we have our flow of information compromised 
by terror organizations. And we're seeing how this is playing out on the streets of American cities and on the campuses of American colleges. People who are being fed their information right through Hamas cutouts. They're pushing propaganda on American news audiences. Lee Smith, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Now let's take a deeper dive into the looming government shutdown. Joining us now to share his thoughts on how the House will move from here, we have Jason Meister, Republican strategist and former Trump advisory board member. Jason Meister, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Right now, all eyes seem to be on the new speaker, Mike Johnson, as another potential government shutdown is looming. Now, Freedom Caucus Chair Scott Perry is already saying he's going to vote no on this continuing resolution that Johnson is proposing. Where do you see this going? Is the government going to stay open? Yeah, look, I'm not as worried about a government shutdown. We are currently in $33.719 trillion of national debt. That's about $260,000 of debt per taxpayer or $100,000 of debt for every citizen in this country. And the question is, what would what would happen if we had a government shutdown? Would, would, we, would we be worse off than we are currently? Would we have an invasion of over 8 million illegal aliens in this country? Would we have wars breaking out in the Middle East and Ukraine? Would we have a, a government that has weaponized their Department of Justice and their FBI and politically persecuting a sitting, a former sitting U.S. president. So the question is no. So I don't see why there's there's so much concern about a government shutdown. The government is the enemy of the people right now. And on that note, how do you see this going for Speaker Johnson? Is it going to be different from McCarthy? Yeah. Look, I think that Speaker Johnson is on thin ice because he's been replaced. He's replaced. Uh, McCarthy, who was also faced with very similar situation. We can't have any more continuing resolutions. We can't have any of these last minute omnibus bills. We need to start to put get our house in order because if, if America isn't in, in order, we can't be helping other countries. And so we need to put America first. We need to get this debt under control and we need to stop. We need massive spending cuts uh, across the board in this country. And right now, in terms of this Johnson's plan to avoid a shutdown, how much of this relies on Democratic support? In its current form, it definitely relies on Democratic support because in its current form, I don't think it will pass without Democratic support. We have a group of MAGA, of America First uh, 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 people in our government who are trying to put America first and the American people first. And the way that you do that is you just cannot jam these omnibus bills past the government. We need to get our house in order, and that's what we're going to do. And so I believe that the only way that Johnson is successful here is if he gets Democrats to vote with him. And how will this impact the public's view of the Republican Party, given that they are the majority in the House? It's a good question. I think that the American people are fed up with the U.S. government and everything that that they have that they've been doing. The fact that we are uh, that Donald Trump is sitting downtown in Manhattan in a courtroom, ba basically under political persecution by Letitia James, while we're sending billions billions upon billions of dollars to Ukraine, is it is 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 insane. And this government has to be reined in. And I think the American people will look better upon the Republican Party if they stand up for the American people and prevent these ridiculous uh, uh, continuing resolutions to be passed. 
On that note, you are a Republican strategist. What's your message to the American people who might be watching all of this unfold and becoming disenchanted with the Republican Party? Yeah, look, I, I will tell you that I think that I understand the frustrations of Americans. I think that they need to understand that it is time for America to be put first. And the way that we do that is we stop these ridiculous bills from passing, we, we, we fund our veterans, we fund our military, and we support the United States of America. And by doing that, we put America first. Jason Meister, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Up next, Thanksgiving is almost here, but salmonella food poisonings unfortunately are already here. How to stay safe. And in college football this week, Michigan will face the Big Ten in a courtroom battle featuring head coach Jim Harbaugh. We'll have details when we return. Welcome back. Thanksgiving is just 10 days away, but unfortunately, while salmonella food poisoning is making the headlines, NTD's Faye Quarter tells us how to stay safe. With Thanksgiving around the corner, cases of salmonella-related food recalls are making the headlines. TrueFresh is mass recalling cantaloupe it sold to 10 states over concerns of potential salmonella contamination. A pet food recall is expanding after six infants became sick after contact with Texas brand Mid-America Pet Food. And diced onion products were recalled from 22 states after people fell ill from a salmonella outbreak. The CDC estimates that salmonella is responsible for almost 27,000 hospitalizations and 420 deaths every year. People get better generally within, you know, three to five to seven days. People get better. They don't necessarily even need to go to a doctor. Um, I think the, the real concern is for people with weakened immune systems, older adults and, and young children. Nutrition professor Jennifer Quinlan says salmonella is a kind of bacteria found inside animals. It can be transmitted to humans through contaminated food or water. The illness may involve diarrhea, cramps, vomiting, and fever. For most people, resting and drinking fluids is the best way to deal with salmonella. For those with weak immune systems, it's best to seek a doctor. Not getting salmonella in the first place is the best solution, especially during Thanksgiving. Your turkey may be contaminated with salmonella, and so in preparing a turkey, again, there's no need to wash it try to prepare it and throw things in the trash as soon as possible and then really decontaminate the surface. USDA currently doesn't recommend stuffing your turkey, but if people do choose to stuff their turkey, they really need to make sure that not only the turkey reaches 165, but the stuffing inside of the turkey reaches 165. Quinlan advises using a thermometer to double check the temperature. For fruits and produce, she advises washing thoroughly before eating because contaminated water might be on the surface. Faye Quarter, NTD News. And now for your sports news, here's NTD's Dave Martin with an update on the Jim Harbaugh suspension. That's right, Tiff. Michigan head coach Jim Harbaugh says he'll attend and possibly testify at a Friday court hearing where the university is seeking to reverse his three-game suspension handed down by the Big Ten last week. Said the embattled coach, I'm going to talk on Friday. I'm just looking forward to that opportunity due process. I'm not looking for special treatment, not looking for a popularity contest, just looking for the merit of what the case is. 
The Big Ten suspended Harbaugh Friday for three games for violating the conference's sportsmanship policy. The commissioner said Friday he'd gathered enough information from the NCAA and others to prove a member of Harbaugh's staff had illegally scouted other teams' play calls in advance. Otherwise called sign stealing, the practice is prohibited under NCAA rules. And in college basketball news, the University of Arizona is now ranked third after their win last week at Duke. The win pushed the Wildcats record to 2-0 on the young season, while Duke, which fell from second to ninth, is now 1-1. Meanwhile, at the top, Kansas maintained their number one ranking while Purdue moved up to second. Behind them, Marquette is fourth, followed by defending champion UConn at number five. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, the NBA has four games on featuring the new look Boston Celtics, now 7-2 with the addition of all-star guard Drew Holiday. They host the New York Knicks. And on the ice, a doubleheader in the NHL, including the slow-starting Edmonton Oilers and Connor McDavid. McDavid, who led the entire league in both goals and assists last year, is just fourth on his own team with 10 points through 11 games. He and his teammates host the New York Islanders. And finally, in the NFL, the Buffalo Bills host the Denver Broncos on Monday Night Football. And that's it for Sports News Today. Tiff, back to you. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.